Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. My name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad that you're here. This interview was the last I did on my laptop. It seems it is not geared to save and store large files from streaming platforms. This hour-long interview is all my computer saved of the three-plus hours that we spoke. No idea what happened to the rest of it. Just vanished. It was recorded in one shot, and we had no idea of the time until I belatedly looked at my watch as I had a gig to go to. Connie Reagan Blake has been telling stories for a very long time. She and her cousin Barbara Freeman started about the same time as Elizabeth Ellis and Gail Ross. She is a teller of folk and fairy tales and sprinkles in some personal narrative. Much of what she has done is now in the Library of Congress. She's played with musicians, hitchhiked Europe, and creates her own art. We pick up where I ask Connie about the duo storytellers, the folk tellers made up of Connie and her cousin Barbara. Enjoy. I I love the way that you two so magically started telling stories together. Yeah, really just it's the, the universe is very strange like that. God, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's I think those of us a lot of us who've been called to this have had some, you know, it's like almost by accident. You know, it's not something that we sort out but it's something that said hey come here yeah <laughs> join this mad crazy world of storytelling gosh i know and and it just keeps growing and and this weird time of covid yeah i think storytelling is really getting out there even more i think it is i really do i think this is maybe what it's needed um to get more regular punters to know what we're about i mean people have heard of the moth but there's a lot of folk telling as well that's going on which is really nice because that's you know i feel that's just as important if not more important than, than personal tales Equally, oh, i do too I yeah. yeah 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 i'm a big proponent of that yeah so tell me about your european trip just quickly just give me a little snippet of your okay. european trip when you were a kid <laughs> when you're so just out of college went with a um, friend from college. Her name happened to also be Connie, which no one believed we were both Connies because that's not that common of a name. Yeah. But um, I literally just took a backpack with me and uh, it was back in the days when, I don't know that hitchhiking was safer, but we thought it was. Yeah. And um, a lot of young people were traveling. And still, I think for a lot of Australians, and New Zealanders, it's like this rite of passage to take a year 
or two to just travel and see the world. Yeah, I think you're right. I worked in a pub and a youth hostel, a number of youth hostels actually, and there were. It it really did seem that that was part of the deal. Yeah, you know, it wasn't written down anywhere, but it it seemed to be something that a lot of Australians did. You know, the rite of passage is a great way of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. So we met a lot of people. There were a lot of campgrounds. A lot of people took us in, and uh, I had um, uh, taken some German in um, uh, college, so I thought that might help me, but I'm not really a second language kind of person. Uh, I wished I was, but uh, I didn't really. People in general over in Europe in those days, they wanted to speak English because they wanted to practice their English. They still do. So my mum's partner, Peter, he he was stationed over in Germany at the end of the war. and he's got a son that lives in Germany. So he's taught himself German and has gone over to Germany. He wants to, and he says it's kind of crazy because he's, he's somewhat obstinate and he'll meet a German and they'll, they'll be conversing and the German will be speaking in English and Peter will be speaking in German. German it's God. the strangest thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we, um, I had thought that I would, I was hopeful about getting a, a, a I really wanted to see as much of Western Europe as I could. And I didn't have big bucks. I just had enough to really be able to keep going and stuff. And so um, Connie and I traveled for a couple of months when we first got there, just hitchhiking and traveling around. And um, then we started looking for a job for the winter time so we could stay in one spot. And we ended up um, working on an Air Force base an American oh, Air right, Force right. base in Wiesbaden outside Frankfurt. And we did that for three months during the winter time. Did you do any and, storytelling there to the troops? You know, I, I think I did some. I did do some, you know, um, Barbara and I were actually invited to come to um, the uh, eastern part of this world. Uh, three, we did, made three different trips and told through the Department of Defense um, education, their education, dependent schools, they were called, mm-hmm. Department of Defense dependent schools. So I told on a lot of bases then. Back um, at, um, uh, over in Germany when, we, when I was there for that first winter, I really don't remember telling. You know, I, I know that when I traveled, I told some, but it was not like that was my big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, I was more, if I was telling it all, it was just family stories, you know, about things that happened and stuff. Yeah. But because I'd really not been introduced to storytelling at that part. And, uh, but I certainly got, I got some stories from my experiences, but I've never told them. And it's been an interesting thing. Every few years or somebody will ask something. And it's like, I can't believe I haven't told any stories about that, but. But anyway, after those three months then, Connie, my uh, partner, I mean, uh, my traveling partner, uh, she had met and fell in love with a guy. So she came back with an Air Force guy. She came back to the States and got married. And actually, just a few days, their 50th wedding anniversary. That's cool. So this was 50 years ago. And um, and I just continued traveling. I ended up meeting some other people that 
woman that I traveled out to California to see later, a few years later, and she and I hitched and traveled some. And then at some point, she and I and one other person went in together and bought a little Volkswagen bug. And we started traveling. A bug, traveling. not a bus. Huh? A bug, a bug. A yeah, bus. we couldn't afford a bus. <laughs> and we had a tent. And I remember uh, my sister came over to visit at one point. I remember we felt like we were in the Swiss Alps. And we felt like we had, all of us had one foot out trying to push our way up that mountain. <laughs> um, but um, the three of us that bought the car uh, ended up over in Turkey and almost got caught there in Turkey. And there's a whole story around that that I'm going to make a mental note. I really need to tell that story. Do that, Connie. Yeah, uh, and, uh, that and was then, a good time to be caught in Turkey. It, it was uh, in interesting times. Yeah, this was in 70. This would have been uh, in uh, 70, 1970. And uh, then, um, and I remember that my mom, I would try to let her know, you know, we'd be in touch every three or four months or something, because I would try and let her know maybe a campground that I was going to or someplace that, you know, I would write her. But I remember her writing me and she had known I'd been in Turkey and she knew that the borders got closed and she knew the dates for some reason. I guess I told her when I was heading to Greece or something. Mm. And I thought, you know, there's no way she would have known about all that. But anyway, again, that'll she be did. another story. Um, but um, then, um, you know, but people opened up their homes often for us to stay. We camped some. It was with such generosity that we found everywhere. Just these incredibly wide open hearts and people that were really wanting to share about their lives. And I met up with some Australians um, at a campground who were traveling what they call overland to Australia. And they were in a Volkswagen bus. And there, I think there were four or five guys. And uh, they really wanted us to go with them, to take our little car, you know, our little bug, and follow them. And you go, back then, you could, there was a way you could make your way in a vehicle all the way over as far as you could go east, leave your vehicle, and it was a hop over to Australia. And I wanted to do it, but I had run out of money by then, and or almost. And you could live on almost nothing in Europe at the time if you yeah. were hitchhiking and staying with people or staying in hostels, um, but you couldn't make money. So I had to yeah. come back to the States. So December of that year, I came back to the States. And then a few months later, was working uh, up in Atlanta, living with my sister. And that's when I went to visit Barbara. And then the storytelling happened. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. But Europe was, was really an amazing adventure. You know, it was... Yeah, that time, that was before everything started to fold. Because it was later in the 70s when the, you know, the whole economic collapse happened and business was a closing left right and center i mean my mom I was she was not even aware of all that yeah yeah it was it probably started in 75 i'm guessing my mom ended up working three days a week 
factories which were only open three days a week and people only being paid for three days a week. And then a lot of the factories just shut down. They couldn't keep running. It was, it was horrible. I mean, when I left school in 1979, this is high school, um, at the age of 16, we were given a class where all the teachers, they could, they were allowed to give us a class in our last year on whatever they wanted to teach us. Right. And some of them were doing some really cool stuff. And this one guy, and we would have to go to these classes and this one guy did forms. And so his class was about filling out forms in particular, the unemployment benefit forms. He says, because that's, wow. that's the one you're going to be you know, signing up for. Cause unless you go work in the forces or in the police, um, there's nothing out there. Well, that's very telling. Gosh. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, um, tell me about mama T and what happened to her. Well, we actually <laughs> did not know mama T. Uh, she was my mother's mother. That's what uh, everyone called her. Regina was her real name. And she was married to uh, Samuel Elis Freeman, and they uh, raised their family right outside of Nashville there in Tennessee. And um, she passed away when I was just a month shy of a year. So I didn't get to know her, but Barbara and I named our record label after her. And so that's why we became, not many people actually know about that. I'm assuming that's where you heard about Mama T. Well, I'm asking, yeah I, want the, yeah, I knew there was a story behind it. I just didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, so we named our uh, record label Mama T Artist because we were both from Mama T. And, um, but we actually named ourselves the Folk Tellers. Right. And it was back in Connecticut and someone, we were trying to come up with a name and there was someone we were staying with that same Bill Domler who ran the Connecticut Folk Festival. And he is the one, he happened to work, his uh, full-time job was running a copy shop, you know, Xeroxing things yeah, for people yeah. and such. And um, so he asked if we wanted a flyer. And we said, well, yeah. And he called Sandy Payton, that, who was well known because of Folk Legacy and just because of who he was uh, and got a quote from him about our storytelling. And Bill was a photographer, so we took some pictures and he uh, had us write up something and he added to it and got a few other quotes. And uh, the very first flyer, I think, which I've got a copy of in my collection, uh, the very first flyer, I think we weren't called the folk tellers, but <clears throat> uh, someone during that time it was within a month's time, because we were thinking the word storytellers still had that connotation, so much of children. And someone else said, well, what about folk telling? And so we called ourselves then the folk tellers, and we were uh, storytelling partners for 20 years. That's a long time. Yeah. I also, Simon, if you're interested, um, I also have, uh, I've, kept this box for all these years and I add to it every single year. I have almost every single program from all 47 national storytelling festivals. Wow. I'm only missing a couple and I'm gonna try and get those. All that's for the Library of Congress collection too. 
But um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, Phil mentioned, uh, my husband Phil, mentioned that he'd really love to look at those with me. And so we sat down and so over the last two or three weeks, we go through either one or two or three of these years. We're now up to number 11. And Phil is reading whatever it is I have. At first, it was just a Xerox little copy, you know, yeah. Jerry Clower and the this and that. And, and, uh, and then by the 10th, um, my friend Dana had done a, a pencil original drawing of Ray Hicks, and we got a poster for the 10th festival and nice. all the tellers. So we're going through this. So I'd be glad to share a few of those yeah. uh, with you as well. I, yeah, I'd uh, love that because I think that people would love to see that stuff. Yeah, and actually, I, uh, uh, I can ask you about this later, but I was thinking I might actually do a, uh, I, the idea came to me the last time Phil and I sat on the couch and did a few of these. I might start doing a Facebook Live and just go through each of them and, you know, do just like Phil and I've been doing, but record it and have that available for people. And scan the pictures of people and what they look like now and what they look like then. Yeah, you know, because uh, <laughs> all the people that were at some of those early festivals, you know, yeah. um, at the tenth, Laura Sims was at the tenth, and Heather Forrest, and yeah, it was fun. So I read that you did a project or two or three with the Kandinsky Trio. Yeah, that's uh, was really extraordinary. Uh, that's um, uh, they, their agent actually. So they're a piano trio. I don't think they're performing very much at all. I think still just every once in a while. This was back in the mid '90s, and they were at uh, some of the height of their career, and booked all over. And their agent thought it would be a great idea. He had somehow come upon the idea about storytelling, and he thought it would be a great idea to collaborate with a storyteller and do performances. And he, when he wrote the grant for it, he got 10 places along the Appalachians to agree to book the event before, before they had hired a storyteller, before any music oh, was wow. written. This was going to be original music. And they had a, a, a composer who had an interesting background. He played, uh, uh, college football for Penn State and was a huge star and then played for NFL Cincinnati uh, Bengals and he quit at the height of his career Mike Reed is his name he quit at the height of his career because he loved the piano and he was afraid football might injure his fingers yeah and so he started writing full-time he's a Grammy award winner writer has written hits for Bonnie Raid and the Judds have recorded his music and all that. But he always loved classical music. So they got him on board that he would write classical music to a traditional. They actually thought it would be a series of traditional stories. And, um, and then they found me. And as Alan, the cellist, uh, in those first years, we did a lot of interviews. And we would have uh, a lot of times for all five of us the trio, myself, and the composer, Mike Reed, would go around and do these interviews, and people would always ask about how this came about, and, and uh, Alan was wont to say, he would say, uh, yeah, we um, uh, looked at lots of storytellers, and Connie was the only one that would come with us, so. 
Um, but they hired me up. You have such an easy way about yourself. You really do. It's very easy to be with you. It really is. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, but, uh, he, they hired me up and I went to visit. Um, we talked, the trio and I talked about, uh, what story possible. We thought about that two white horses. Um, and one thing I mentioned to them about that though, that's an intense, beautiful story but it's really not for younger kids and you would almost i like to i don't tell it unless it's for teenagers and adults right so we didn't want to then have to say for this performance the agent's idea was that um uh, you know the audit the live audience for uh, classical music was drifting off and his idea was maybe if we could pull in new listeners from storytelling to be able to hear classical music. And then these classical music listeners would be able to get a taste of storytelling and build the audience of both. So that was the intention behind it. And um, so we kept talking about different stories and um, I really um, kind of uh, ended up with uh, a version of a story I heard Ray Hicks tell that day that we walked around Jonesboro, not on stage, he told Jack and Heverhide, but this was uh, Wicked John and the Devil. And it's, uh, we called it the Cantankerous Blacksmith. I'd also heard my cousin Barbara Freeman tell it. And um, by then, that was right at the time when Barbara and I were, um, the way I like to look at it is that we had decided to um, pursue our solo careers. We really had grown in very different directions. And um, Barbara had uh, embraced um, a very different kind of um, way of looking at the world. Uh, Her Catholic faith became her primary focus. And as she describes it herself, uh, she uh, became a fanatical person. She's still really into it. And that is the focus of her life. And then it's what stories support that part right. of her life. And so for us as partners, that just really wasn't working. You know, she wasn't comfortable with some of the stories that we were telling. And even though they were not off-color stories, but from her viewpoint, she wasn't comfortable. And, yeah, and it turned it. out to be one of those incredible blessings, you know, I, I think of it as kind of opening a door, uh, a a brand new door. So Barbara opened that first door for me for storytelling. And in some ways you could say because of the path that her life went on, she ended up opening this other door. And it was a scary time. I had never been on stage before performing. I've been on stage plenty of times emceeing. Mm-hmm. Never on stage, except maybe once or twice since I had started. This was in 1995 is when we went our separate ways. We took about a year and a half to do it because we already had lots of bookings and things. Um, but I was very fortunate that the trio was right at that time. And I was clear to not continue for Barbara and I. It was not a, a good thing for Barbara and I to continue. And... Um, they really, the trio really loved Two White Horses, and we were thinking we would go in that direction. 
and Barbara gave her blessing to it being me instead of her. And that's kind of how that happened. And we went on, we did over 300 performances, traveled mostly in the eastern part of the United States. Because uh, with a cello, you have, it's harder to do the flying part. So yes. I would meet up with them and they would have had uh, come in a van wherever, all over New England, all over. We did those first 10 performances before we even knew what story it was gonna be, all before we had the music. And we committed to it. We knew those 10 were booked. And then um, I really thought Wicked John could work. I went to Nashville, I was happened to be performing there and met Mike, the composer. And I did a, a, a he just, you know, taped a version of me uh, telling it. And I told him that's not exactly this way every single time I tell it. Right. And I remember then he started uh, writing uh, some music. And this was in the winter before our first show, I think was, you know, I'm not, actually not positive. I've got that flyer as well somewhere in my, that might already be at the Library of Congress, that first uh, schedule. We ended up having 36 bookings the first year. Wow. But um, we already um, knew when it was gonna be happening and this was in December, I think is when I met up with Mike and we made the final decision on that story. And I love this part of it that Mike sent some sketches, they called them, to the trio, some things he was working on. And as Alan would tell it later, they were terrible. And the trio was like, aghast it was you know they had you know mike had written uh, uh, classical music before and they had loved it that's why they had connected mm -hmm. but this was terrible and as alan would tell it it was so bad that they had to tell him and uh even though you no know, he was a big old nfl football player it was like okay trio who's gonna tell him and alan was uh <laughs> But um, it's one of those, you know, to me, absolutely brilliant unfolding of the universe. And as we would say later, if those sketches had been a little bit better, we would have done the performance, nine of them, and that would have been it. But because they were bad enough that the trio could not do them, Mm -hmm. Mike, when he heard about it, he just exploded with a whole different creativity. Wow. And we haven't done it now. I don't even remember the last time. It would be at least 15 years ago. And if the trio walked in and someone delivered a baby grand, we could do that performance right now. It is so inside of all of us. We would always do a run through when we'd gone, you know, the uh, dry part of the season when you don't travel and yes. perform. We would always do a run through, but we always could have done it without that. It was that inside us. We just loved it. It was, it's a brilliant piece and there's a recording. So I have a CD of it actually. That was going to be my next question. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped ahead. <laughs> so what, I mean, you've obviously, you've got a huge career behind you and you've done a lot of different things um, and you've seen a lot of different performances from different people and different 
forms of art as well that you've brought into your work what would you think is the most rewarding that you've done i would say um you know there there has been so much and i would say that Ray and my relationship with Ray Hicks and his family with Rosa had the most impact on me as a human being. It opened me up. Ray had such a generosity of spirit and, and had those traditional, he lived the Jack Tales. He, he was inside them. And I feel like I learned so much from him and from just being around him and Rosa, she was this feisty, you know, she five foot one inches tall to yeah. his six feet seven inches tall. I've got a great photograph I can share with you of the three of us. Rosa in the middle there, tiny, right in front of our. You can see our uh, Barbara's and my truck off to the side. The yellow truck. Yeah, the putt is what we called that truck. <laughs> Dotson pickup truck. The putt. Um, but uh, Ray and Rosa were certainly um, uh, had a huge impact on my life and in that way impacted my storytelling, all of it. You know, that it's, I often um, think of, you know, when I'm telling stories, I think of it as bringing people on stage with me. So if I'm telling a story about my mom, it's like she's on stage and I just love it when, when Ray um, and sometimes Rosa are on stage with me. But I would say another place to go back to your question that this impact, again, on me, and then it's gone out, I think, into the world in lots of ripples, is when a friend of mine uh, was over in Uganda. And her husband was um, a doctor who worked with AIDS uh, from Colorado. And he's retired now, but um, Charles and my friend, her name is unusual. It's Torkin, T-O-R-K-I-N. Um, and I had met them. Oh, it's something else that was really cool. That opened up a whole different world for me as well. Back in the late 70s with... Um, the Boulder Healing Arts uh, Festival that uh, a man named Walker had heard Barbara and I on NPR and invited us to this healing arts. It was like healing arts and massage back in the 70s. What is that? Is that secret potions? Or yeah, they invited cult. us and then that opened up another <laughs> aspect of my life. But the Torkin, that's where I met Torkin and Charles. And back in the... Um, uh, uh, early 2000s, uh, in 2003, Charles had been invited to come to Uganda to work with uh, doctors from all over Africa on treating AIDS patients, and because he had real expertise in that. And so Torkin had gone with him with this wonderful attitude of, how can I be of service? And she had uh, investigated, you know, several different things, and she was very open to what she might do over there while, and Charles was supposed to be there for three months. They were going to be there for three months. They ended up living there for three years, mm -hmm. and, um, or longer, 
actually could have been longer than that. But um, there's a lot to say about how that unfolded, but I'll give you the um, cliff notes on it, the very quick. Torkin was walking down a dirt path in uh, near Kampala in Uganda, and the capital city of Uganda. And she came upon a woman named Millie Grace sitting on the dirt on a tiny little uh, rock, uh, sitting on a rock there right beside the path. And she had a whole basket of um, beads and she was sitting there with strips of paper, rolling paper, and dropping these, she'd put a piece of glue, a triangular long piece of paper. She'd roll it up, put a piece of glue, and then drop it in this basket. And Torkin was with two other friends, one her daughter, Devin, and another friend named Jenny, who was over from the States visiting. And um, they stood there and watched Millie Grace, and they found out later that she would take this big basket of these loose beads, string them together, and then dip them in shellac, hang them up on a, a line outside to dry. And then in two weeks, dip them again, hang them up on a line, and again a third time. And then she would make jewelry. And she was sitting there by the side of the road making jewelry. And Torkin just loved it. She loved meeting Millie and Millie Grace, and she bought some of the jewelry and ended up wearing a piece of it. She was uh, going to Charles, her, her husband's office the next day, and someone noticed, actually the next day she was going to an orphanage, and she put on one of the beads, uh, the string of beads, and the director of the orphanage loved it and complimented her on it, and Torkin took it off and handed it to her, gave it to her, and the next day she put on another one, went to Charles's office, and the secretary there, oh, I love that necklace. Torkin took it off, and because and, Torkin had bought, you know, a number of the beads from Millie Grace, number of the necklaces, and um, by, the, by the time that happened, the third day, the idea percolated, and Torkin, along with Jenny and uh, Devin, created a nonprofit called Bead for Life. And they eventually, there's lots more to this story. This is a story that I tell. They eventually then asked me to come over to listen to the women's stories. And I went to Uganda in uh, 07. And that was another, um, so many aspects of my life have been those doors that continually open and taking me into a whole different world. And that world um, changed everything. And one of the huge impacts, it gave me a whole different way of looking at poverty and wealth. And here in the United States, we have a certain, you know, and kind of right away, most people would talk about money and stuff. And uh, the women that I met in Uganda, it was, Simon, just, you know, I often, when I listen to their stories and when I tell these stories about the women I met, I've got a one hour show that I do uh, called um, uh, Brush the Dust from My Heart. <clears throat> That's what one of the women said, that Bead for Life had brushed the dust from her heart. Nice. Um, but, within those stories and within 
the time that I was interviewing those women, often I would be weeping, hearing their stories. But they accepted me as family because Bead for Life said I was family. And then they would end up comforting me from my reaction of hearing how their lives had been yeah. and what they had been through. It was extraordinary. And this, I always wear their jewelry. This is one of the necklaces. I was looking at that, of course. And then I, I became gone. what they call um, a community partner and raised over $100,000 for Bead for Life, doing mm. bead parties and telling stories. And, and they're still going, right? That's a lot. Actually, just with COVID, they have come to a close just in the last uh, month. Oh. But it's okay because out of, you know, the, that door, out of Bead for Life, a number, I don't remember how many years ago, but, you know, in the last decade, they had started something called Street Business School. And that's working with um, people in extreme poverty, uh, all, not only in Uganda, but all over the world. And it's, uh, they have created ways of working with different nonprofits and leader of, leaders of the community to help mostly women build on whatever skills they have that they can then ha develop their own street businesses. And this is a street business school where they go to learn about accounting and about buying, you know, having supplies and, and they learn how to, they all open savings accounts. So when they, at the end of a day, and they take their money home to their village or their community, the money's not gone by within 14 minutes yes. because everyone knows they have some money. They can put some of it in the savings. And right. then their children have gone to school. There are incredible stories around that. All of that's still continuing. And it grew out of Bead for Life. And so that's we could so say, amazing. That just as so much has grown out of, say, Ray Hicks, right. how, what he, as he became the face of traditional storytelling in the United States for the National Storytelling Festival, and he became the face of that festival, which helped it grow. He's passed away, but then life still continues and stories continue. And I feel the same with Bead for Life, that even though it's, you know, taking a break or going you know, wherever wonderful, incredible nonprofits go, Street Business School grew out of it and it's yeah. flourishing. And that's helping all these. That's amazing. I love stories like that. That's so cool. Thank you for asking me. That's the first time I've verbalized any of that. I've been wondering about what is it that I can say? Because I haven't even posted about it. You know, it's, it's a real sadness to me too. Because when, um, when the elders pass, yeah. Sadness is there and Bead for Life was definitely one of my elders. So wow. So I've been thinking about, you know, how am I gonna what am I gonna say? So I appreciate you asking because I'll go back and listen to what I said and maybe write up something. <laughs> I'll make sure you get a copy of this. Thank you. I'll give you the raw copy. So um I got a question that we're gonna take a little detour here, a little side street. What's your creative process? How do you find a story? And then once you find a story, and I'm talking more about folk and fairy tales, but we can also talk about personal stories as well. But how do you, what happens when you hear a story and it's like that, I want to tell that story. And then where do you go from there? 
what's the yeah. process behind that before it gets um, from there to the stage yes or a cd or album or vinyl yeah goes to the stage actually it goes other places before the stage too it always goes to listeners ears you know i'm not someone that sits behind a computer and writes a story um even if it's a traditional story whether it's traditional or um a, a personal experience or i also do true life stories um so i don't my process is to start telling it. And then I record my, and I tell it to someone. There's some storytellers that can work on stories. Like I know someone who, when she's taking walks, you know, she records herself, listens, and then when she's on a walk, she tells it kind of thing. And, yeah. But I can't do it without someone else listening. I need a human reflecting it back to me. Um, but, um, I, for the traditional stories, I certainly got some of my stories from Murray. Uh, I would, uh, record him. I went up to, uh, the home place on Beach Mountain in Watauga County and always kept, took my tape recorder with me whenever I went to visit. And, uh, so I learned some of the stories that way, listening to Ray tell him and then listening to him again and again. And then also from books, you know, that those right. traditional stories that have been collected, I usually try to find different versions of a story. And then, so if it's in a book, I'll tell you what my process is. So I, I will um, Xerox that story and then I'll read it, but I read it kind of, to myself, I don't do it out loud until I've got some listeners. I'll read it out, I'll read it to myself and start pulling in the images, right. thinking about it. And then I often do this right before I go to bed at night. And one of the ways that, because of people asking questions, like interviewers like you, I came to realize it's as if I'm putting it into my dream world. So that when I wake up in the morning, it's more inside me. And that's what I'm looking for, no matter what the story is, whether it's traditional personal experience, true life. I want that story not to just be in my head. It is not memorized text, but it's down inside who I am. Yeah. So it's coming back out, certainly with my mind and my memory, but it's coming back out through my heart as well. And yeah. through who I am. And they're catching some of your life experiences that bring that story to. Right. And it might not even be in the words of the story, but it's underneath it. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's informing the story the whole time. Yeah, and I then, I, so I might, you know, read it and think about it, put it aside and pick it back up again and read it and think about it. And, and uh, then maybe it goes to the side totally for a while and then I pick it back up. <laughs> And then once I'm wanting to uh, start uh, thinking about telling it, that it really seems like a story that might be tellable, uh, a next step often is that I then go from that printed text, like what might be in the um, uh, book, then I do go to my computer. I still don't think of it as a script. These are not the words I'm gonna be using necessarily. Right. So I think of it as text. And for me, there's a distinction. 
And then I start looking at that, reading that story, thinking about it because it's already inside me. And I start thinking about how it would come out my mouth. And I type that up. This is a process that only began maybe a decade or 15 years ago. So before then, I didn't write down any of it. But in more recent years, the last decade or two, I do write them down. And I then, but I do it as my voice. Mm -hmm. So I'm still true. I'm not just changing it and saying, well, I don't like that happened to him. I'll do this. You know, it's, I'm still true, but it's my voice. Then at some point, I might work on that a few more times. At some point I print it. And then I have what I call, and have called for years, story buddies. And these are other professional storytellers. And we work together. Uh, my process is to set up a time with them. I work with Jay O'Callaghan this way and Beth Horner. They're my two main uh, story buddies. And I also work with a storyteller, dear friend, Nancy Shapiro Pakelny up in nice. uh, Skokie, uh, Illinois. And a couple other people that I have worked on the stories with, but those are my main folks. That's a good and little then, gang. <laughs> so we divide, what'd you say? That's a good little gang. Oh boy, it is. <laughs> and uh, so let's say I'm working with Beth that day and um, we kind of divide up the time. Maybe I'm going to take 45 minutes during my 45 minutes. So if I'm working on that story and I'm ready to start giving voice to it, I have printed out the text and I have it in front of me, but I record myself because I know it's not going to be the exact words that are on there because of Beth's good listening. Yeah. So I'm using that almost more. It's not an outline because it's much fuller than an outline what I've got written in front of me, but it's still only the bones. And then I start telling it and I've already worked on it with a telling voice. But then I start telling it to Beth. I've recorded myself. Then I take my recording and I go back to that text and start honing it. And then I work the next time with Jake from that honed version. Uh -huh. It's in front of me. I record myself. Wow. And then that's how it goes. And then, you know, and sometimes it depends on bookings I have and if I want to tell it. There right. are times that, you know, because I am now, I've done this for all these years, almost 50 years yeah. on the stage and behind microphones. Um, I, I'm in a place where sometimes I don't know exactly what or how I'm going to end it. And I'm okay going on stage. Then I record myself on stage. I don't know if you've ever heard me tell when I, I'll tell the audience that I've got my, you know, this is a story I still is uh, living and growing inside me. I'm going to record this telling and see what happens. So I've got my phone right with me and I record that telling and see what happens. And then yeah. I go back to that script and, and uh, that text and continually update That's a it. long process. It is, but sometimes it's very quick to the, and sometimes I, I don't ever get back to this phone to really listen. It's <laughs> then gotten in me yeah. so that when you see, I do make notes then sometimes pencil notes. So, you know, you couldn't exactly tell that that text that I've got typed up, you know, I'll read it over before I go on stage with it. But sometimes it's a fairly quick process that I end up on stage with it. Then I've recorded that and then I'm working on it that way too. That's neat. 
And you do a lot of stuff and you send it to the Library of Congress, or is that just the folk and fairy tales? No, so what they um, did, um, you know, those early years, mm -hmm. there were only story, there were only folk music festivals, not, the national festivals started in um, 73, and then uh, there was another festival that started a couple of years after that, but for many years, those were the only two storytelling festivals in the United States. And, um, uh, but the folk music festivals, of course, had this rebirth. They've been going on, but they had a rebirth in the late 60s and then continued all the way through the 70s. Right. So a lot of the performing that I did, that Barbara and I did, um, that I did as when I was still at the library and then Barbara and I did as partners, was um, the folk music festivals. And that world just absolutely invited us onto main stages. You know, within, by the late 70s, we told to 20,000 people at the uh, Winnipeg Folk Festival. You know, they just, they loved it. They embraced us and they embraced storytelling. Um, but they're not doing that these days though, are they? A lot of no. Places. Hmm. It's gone all back to music and dance. Yeah, uh, there was a time period uh, uh, for us, it was that we wanted to stay home more. You know, I'd met my sweetheart, my future husband. We actually uh, celebrated 39 years of meeting each other last Friday oh, and had a wonderful day out on the lake in our new kayak, nice. double kayak. But um, in the early days, like I said, we were the only storytellers. Um, there was one woman down in uh, let me see if I can pull back her name. She actually ran a festival too in Florida. She was an older woman when I met her. She was in her 80s. She was um, in the folk music, you know, she told on some stages here in uh, the South. Mm -hmm. But in, you know, in general at folk music festivals, Marshall Dodge was the humorist. Mm -hmm. And then Barbara and I were the only storytellers. And then we started. Um, as they say, inspiring competition. And so other people, including duos, you know, the 12 Moon Storytellers, that was Gail Ross and Elizabeth Ellis. Right. And then, the, I don't remember what they called themselves, but Nancy Schimmel, that was another duo uh, from out in California, Malvina Reynolds' daughter. Uh, she heard us in the early 70s and heard the uh, tandem telling in the mid-70s. But, um, and she started telling uh, and so they were doing some of the folk festivals, but, um, it, and there were a few others, I think, uh, seems like Susan Klein did some, but there were not many that kind of went into that world. And then in the mid eighties, Barbara and I were wanting to stay home in the summertime. I was with my sweetheart. And that's when we actually did, we can talk about another time, but we created a play called Mountain Sweet Talk. That's right. That ran for seven years. And um, we started staying at home. And then I think, I don't know if it was because it, we weren't there in promoting storytelling or if there was just a different turn in the 90s. Or it could be that there were other storytellers that were doing it that I just wasn't familiar with. But it seemed then, and the storytelling festivals started picking up. By the late 70s, early 80s, there were storytelling festivals happening in different places. Right. And then that became its own whole world um, uh, of being out there. And 
So maybe that's why there weren't as many. But anyway, back to your question. About now it's been probably 15, maybe even almost, I'd say around 15 years ago, I was going through some uh, old things that I had. And I had, for whatever reason, Simon, kept, even when Barbara and I were traveling in that truck, we, that was where we lived for three years, from 1975 until 1978. Once we started getting jobs, we gave people my sister's mailing address and phone number, and we would call her every once in a while and say, we're going to be in Brattleboro, Vermont. Here's the general delivery post office address, or we're going to be in Philadelphia. Here's the general delivery post office box. She would box up all the mail, send it to us, and we would pick it up. You know, we'd walk in, can we have our mail, please? And I have a very vivid memory of sitting on those beautiful granite or marble steps yeah. that lead up to the Philadelphia post office, oh, where we'd yes. gone in, ask for our mail, come outside and sit down and read our mail. And that's how people hired us in wow. those early days. That's how it happened. That's amazing. Um, and then we settled in Asheville. Um, but um, so, uh, so I'm, uh, your question just drifted off. So do you remember where we were, we were talking going? about your creative yes. process? And then we went down the side street. <laughs> yeah, we've gone down several side streets <laughs> since then. Let That's me see right. if I can uh, pull it back, though. So it was when we were at home. I mentioned about that yeah. and that play. Oh, yes. So I got it. Here's the thread. So uh, once then, during all that time, I had saved everything. And whenever we went by my sister's place in Atlanta, you know, as we were traveling and we would always swing by if we were close, I would leave off boxes of flyers and I left all that correspondence I had at the beginning. I, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of different things. Like posters, uh, storytelling and uh, folk festival posters and That's memorabilia. I left all that at Bonnie's. And then, so I had it all here, you know, after I moved to a place and Phil and I got a place big enough with some storage, I moved it all here. And one day, about 15 years ago, I was downstairs and going through something and I saw old recordings, cassette recordings that I had from some of the folk music um, uh, giants. Tommy Gerald, who a lot of all fiddlers and banjo players practically that learned from Southern recordings and in person, you know, coming to the Southern folk festivals. Uh -huh. uh, and these are the much smaller festivals, not the big Philadelphia, Winnipeg, Vancouver right. kind of festivals. These small ones, um, they would come and a lot of them would learn from, um, you know, all these different fiddle players. And well, I've recorded lots of those people. So I saw all these recordings in a box and I knew um, Todd from up at the Library of Congress. I'd met him. And I called him or got in touch with him somehow. And I said, you know, you might want all these. You know, these are from back in the 70s and early 80s and uh, Tommy Gerald. And, and I had some of Pete Seeger from some early nice. things of him at, at uh, different festivals. And 
um, a, a blues player from down in Mississippi. Can't remember his name right now, but that's a white net. <laughs> stuff from him, and um, and Todd right away he said, "Oh yeah, we'll put it in your collection," and I said, "My collection," <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, you know, uh, Barbara donated a bunch of her stuff because it had gotten." Um, she had a bunch of stuff in a storage shed. She had donated it to the um, uh, the International Storytelling, what became the International Storytelling Center. Uh, they had thought they were going to do a library. That was in the plans in the early days, and they never did. They handed it over to Todd at Library of Congress Folk Life Center. And Todd said, we've, you know, we've taken all that, and we would love to have more. And I said, Oh, Todd. <laughs> and so I have sent 10 boxes so far. Holy moly. I have probably another 20. Wow. And, um, and then everything I have beyond that, after I die, will go to them, including now all the digital. You know, because I've saved, you know, before I even knew about this, once I started doing email, which Barbara and I got a computer back in the late 80s, we were early on board that whole um, uh, world and um, got a website. Not then, we didn't, but we were doing things on the computer. And um, ever since uh, I started my own company, Story Window, um, I have saved all those, all the bookings, all the correspondence, all the, when the national storytelling association was breaking with the national storytelling festival all that correspondence i have all of that you know wow it's it's really so all of that including all the digital will eventually go into my collection which my collection is actually already up online i haven't really announced that because they have so little compared to what i have i sent them all the trio stuff because I'm not doing that anymore, all that Kandinsky trio. Yeah, yeah. So if someone went to the collection, probably they're going to think that was the biggest thing I did in my career. Because that's what they all have all transcribed now and <laughs> is all online. And uh, Todd would love it if I would send more, but for whatever reasons, I, I'm, I'm uh, holding on you to know, uh, there's a part of me that can be judgmental and say, why haven't you sent more? But I do try to live my life trusting as all those doors open up and trusting in the absolute perfection of timing. So even in, during this COVID lockdown time, that perfection of timing hasn't come together where I've sent another 10 or 20 boxes. Wow. But some of the reason is because I've kept thinking and I've had people approach me about doing books and I've kept thinking that might happen. And, um, I'm just such an oral person, though, that I have, you know, I really have no interest in sitting down and trying to write a book. And I've had people do a lot of recording of me. Karen Neal has a lot, and she would like to do a book, and it just hasn't happened. That timing hasn't unfolded yet. Mm -hmm. But that's what is the whole Library of Congress thing. So now it is a Connie Reagan Blake collection, <laughs> and all of the boxes you know, all of those materials and every single one of the storytelling programs since 1971 
you know, I'll, I'll be glad to share some of those. I'd love and to let see you some uh, have some so images, yeah. share some uh, images of the early photos of the tellers, you know, and experiences with them. So yeah, it's a real, um, uh, pretty amazing uh, collection of this history that is a visual collection yeah. and readable collection of the oral tradition as performance storytelling unfolded here in the United States. That's really cool. I got two more questions for you. And I do have one short little thing to tell you. Okay. And then I'll, I'll do the, the question. Right. Should I just tell you now? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a new adventure that I'm on creative adventure that has just been, it, it just um, causes and not cause it causes and brings me so much joy. About five years ago, I started doing collages, you know, taking bits and cutting yeah. out things from magazines and calendars and some old photos and putting together. I have a group of three women that are my collage sisters and um, we've met over years. They're each artist in their own right, and um, we each do our own thing, but it's very communal, and uh, three and a half months ago, we started doing it on Zoom, so we've continued. We meet about once a month and do these collages, and I then, uh, I, Phil gave me the best birthday gift in the world, and some of our friends have said that he raised the bar way too high. <laughs> He took my collages and put them into a hardback, gorgeous, huge book. Really? And then as friends have come over, back when we were uh, socially present with our friends in our homes, and friends kept admiring them and saying, I love that. I love this one. I would buy that one. I would, that I, this newest project, I now have pictures I have made greeting cards whoops sorry out of 20 of my collages those are really cool and I'm selling them on my website sorry this is backwards here that's all right no it's good these are really good pictures of course so the listeners aren't going to be able to see them but it's on your website right yes which is storywindow.com Story and these are newly window. up they've not even been introduced to the world by uh today uh yesterday for two and a half hours my uh assistant and i uh, are working she's got a lot of skills and we're working on getting all this up and uh, you know all on the web so it's going to be there right alongside the cds to me That's so they are a wordless way of telling stories. I have to tell you, related to that, what you just said is that I was never a big fan of Aesop's Lion and the Mouse until I saw David Pinsky's wordless picture book of the Lion and the Mouse. And I fell in love with it and it kind of brought the story to life for me. And I was like, that's such a great story. And I yes. started telling it. It's amazing how that when you when you when the words are moved out of the way and they're not yeah. blocking you then you see the story and then you can tell it yourself because it's you know like your process your process is 
is very different to mine, but there are similarities. I let the stories sit inside for a while and then I'll write them out in my own vernacular, in my own, you know, pace and whatever. And then I'll read that a few times. And I'll let it sit inside me again. So it's, it's, it, and it's, it's basically getting away from the words, but putting the story down in, in my, in my own voice. Yes. And, and I love it when somebody says, Oh, it's a wordless book. Cause it's like, yes, I want to see this. <laughs> and you know, in some ways it really makes sense too, because as storytellers, so many of us, we're really telling the images that are in our head. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So yeah. working with images, it, I mean, it makes so much sense, this whole visual sense of storytelling. So yeah, yeah, totally. What do you do to feed yourself artistically? And I think I know the answer to that. I think it's probably the collages. But. <laughs> That's right. If, you, if I just let you ask that question, and you can use that question and I'll go into this answer if you want to uh, edit it that way. Because that is one of the things. And it just, I have, you know, I was, I've got a couple of friends because I always, I love hearing what other people have to say. Small group of people, just like my story buddies. Mm -hmm. But I love that hearing it. You know, so I have Nancy, I mentioned earlier, and Beth, uh, I have several other people that have helped me on these um, collages, because even though the collages are wordless, I wanted to name each one. So I came up with names, and then I had other people. So, but uh, that idea of um, working with other people, and I, I've told some of them, as, as this is coming to fruition and is almost ready for announcement now. I've told them in some ways, when I look at these collages online, it's like, it is a different art form because uh, it's, it's um, two dimensional. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, when you're looking online, it's one dimensional. Right. It's not even the card. So, right. um, so it's a different art form. And I have been so tickled with them. and <laughs> so delighted. There's a part of me that is almost like, yeah, but Connie, you did these. And I was like, I know. And I'm so, you know, I just, I'm thrilled with them. It's like I have found not only a new art form for me to actually do, but I found a new art form for me as a watcher, as a, someone that takes in art, I found a new way to enjoy art. Right. And so it really is, I'm not as drawn during these COVID days to um, learn new stories. You know, I know that's been a, it's been a powerhouse time for a lot of people and just yeah. for creative people in general. But if anything, I would say, um, I've been leaning more towards the nonverbal uh, stories of the collages. That's so neat. That's so neat. Well, Connie, I'd like to, Thank you so much indeed for spending this much time with me. It's, a, it's an honor and a treat. <laughs> I thank you too, Simon. So I, uh, You are such a good listener. And that's really, for me, the best gift. And I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Connie, thanks so much indeed. I really appreciate this. Thank yeah, you so much thank you, Simon. And thank you're you for welcome. being patient with all it too. Good no. luck on your performance. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. What a great time we had. I am so annoyed, angry almost, that the first two hours of this are gone. 
but we still had a lovely conversation and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and the time flew by for you too. Visit Connie's website, storywindow.com to see some of her collages and buy some of her stories. They are so well told. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legend storyteller, send me an email. Shout out and let me know. You can find me and my work on Facebook and on my website, Simon Brooks Storyteller, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout-out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use his wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check it out. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoy to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content on my work. www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. Thanks to Rene Kimray and Megan Wells for becoming new patrons. Thanks to all of you for supporting my little podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Want your name mentioned? Join the gang. If you can't join these wonderful folks, then please help me out by doing something that you can do. I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, wherever you find this episode. It helps not just me, but it helps others to find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know there are a lot of other places you could be. I appreciate it. Until next time, be happy, be healthy, and share the stories that you love. Bye. Simon out. It's just a story. Just a story. <laughs> just a story. Yeah.